0: Hey, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And before we start the show, we'd like to bring your attention to some cool conferences happening around the world.
1: Specifically, NDC Sydney, happening August 14th through the 18th in Sydney, Australia.
0: Now, I personally can't make it to Sydney this year, but you're going, right, Richard?
1: Absolutely, I'm going, you know, because Sydney. Uh, Yeah,
0: awesome. I wish I could go.
1: So go to ndcsydney.com and register now.
0: Save some money and register before April 30th for early bird pricing.
1: And for more great NDC conferences, go to ndcconferences.com. Right.
0: Hey, welcome back. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Geeking out again, this time with everybody's favorite topic, antibiotics.
1: Mm, And Mm. you know the funny part is... While I've been taking notes on antibiotics for the past few years, I really only picked this show because I'm just not quite happy with the Large Hydroid Collider show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I got so immersed in this and I realized going back through the list, we've really done nothing in the whole biology medicine area for geeking out. Yeah. So we may uh, step on a minefield here. Who knows? Well,
0: you know, there's a lot of stuff to know and there's a lot of stuff there- to share. There's been a lot of great science in the last,
1: geez, five years. There's all kinds of things going on in there but yeah uh, it's uh, there's a lot to know there's no two ways about that
0: yeah well i have something very personal to share for better know framework today nice all right buddy what do you got Well, okay. Um, People who listen to the Geek Outs and .NET Rocks probably know about my reversal of type 2 diabetes and my weight loss and all of that due to the ketogenic diet. And um, it's been 80 pounds and um, no longer diabetic and uh, no heart disease, none of that. Well, Richard Morris and I, who do the Two Keto Dudes podcast, have started a Kickstarter to have an event in New London, Connecticut called Keto Fest. And the Kickstarter ends on April 26th, so it's right down to the wire here. And I uh, have no idea if we're going to make it or not, but the whole idea is that we want to have a festival, not just a conference, but a festival. So there's going to be a pig roast on Saturday. That's going to be called Social Saturday. We'll have music. We'll have uh, fitness lessons and cooking lessons and walking tours and cycle tours and uh, even Segway tours. And just a whole bunch of hanging out and, uh, you know, in eating keto food. And then on Science Sunday, we're having uh, some heavy hitter speakers, doctors, the best and the brightest come in and uh, do talks at the Guard Theater here in town. We're going to watch movies. Um, again, there's going to be a lot of great food. And so it's, we're, we're sort of mixing it up. And this is the first thing like this that I've ever done. So uh, go check it out. Even if you're not going to come. Just go check out the video that Morris and I made. It's pretty funny. <laughs> and that's at KetoFest.com. And uh, it's right over my
1: birthday, too. I know. Yeah. So that, uh, and, and unfortunately, I, 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 who happily eat keto these days, uh, have n- are not able to come because I'm going to be away that week. But yeah. uh, I, I hope it goes well for you. You know, you've been around a lot of events over the years. You've got a pretty good idea. That's of what true. to do and how to do it. Yeah, that's so, true. Uh, and it, and in the end, this Kickstarter is really about just reselling the tickets so that everybody could come.
0: Isn't that a good idea? I mean, you know, why take a financial risk when you can use Kickstarter
1: and uh, it's all or nothing? You're either in or you're not, right? By yeah. a one-day pass, by a two-day pass, pretty simple. Yep. And I happen to know from experience that New London in July is really nice. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place and a beautiful time to be there.
0: Well, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, tell everybody about it. And hopefully, we'll make our goal and we'll have a great time. Awesome, dude. Yeah. So, who's talking to us, man?
1: Uh, You know, we haven't done a medicine related uh, show before, so I couldn't really get anything directly referential. But I wanted to pull up uh, this comment from show 1388. And that's the one we did on Worldwide Energy at the end of 2016, which four months later, because it's uh, April now uh has come more and more true i feel very vindicated because we were talking about how solar was really going to take a hold that 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 change in price was going to make all the difference and that's basically the comment that paul bryant wrote right right after the show came out Mm. uh, and he was actually one of the people who encouraged me to make that show in the first place with lots of questions about energy generation and so forth i said how about i just recap the whole thing as it stands Mm. And uh, and so that's how that show came to be. So, Paul, thanks for your encouragement on that. And he said, uh, brilliant show. Glad you decided to go with that topic. You make an excellent point about economics being the most likely driver for moving to alternative power sources other than fossil fuels. And from your analysis, it is exciting that solar at least is looking like it's starting to reach that critical cost competitive tipping point. Yeah, I guess it's not only photovoltaic solutions that look promising, but I guess other ways of harnessing the sun's energy as well, like space-based projects or updraft towers or any other weird and wonderful concepts we haven't thought of yet. Like, no, it's pretty much just solar voltaic. Is and I I would point very plainly to the Chinese for better or worse poured so much money into manufacturing solar panels at scale that they simply drove the price down yeah, okay. massively. And that's what's made the difference. Right? When you build large enough factories and efficient enough fa- manufacturing techniques, you can get the price down a lot to the point where it's price competitive with the least expensive powder generation techniques, which these days are, or at least used to be coal and natural gas. Right. Paul goes on to ask a great question. What about the sustainability of manufacturing solar panels? Hmm. I mean, you, ha- you have to use a lot of different materials. Aren't they in limited supply? Uh, could it ultimately upset the economics as those materials become harder to find? Hmm. Um, the answer to that is no, actually. The funny part is, uh, for the most part, solar panels are made of silicon. And last time I looked, we still have lots of beaches. There's lots and lots of silicon. It is a very common material. Even those thin film ones that are supposedly just printed? It's just thinner layers of silicon, although there's okay. some other materials in there. Where I think people get tripped up is they are, the additional materials besides silicon are what are called rare earths. Right. Okay, things like yttrium and the like. The funny part is that rare earths aren't actually that rare. Yeah. It's it's really just a misnaming. Well, they're, so, they're a natural resource, but you know what? So is... Natural gas and coal and oil, those are all natural resources, right? Right. And more relevantly, once you make the panels, there's no consumable after that.
0: Right. So it's a more efficient use of natural resources.
1: Yeah. If you're going to dig something out of the ground, I'd rather dig out the rare earths and the silicon and make them into solar panels than dig out the coal and burn it. Yep. So that uh, that actually makes a difference. So I and I don't know if that's going to last forever or not. You know, right now what I'm busy researching is whether or not what it would actually take to manufacture a solar panel on the moon. So I'm literally going through the detailed uh, mineral requirements and so forth, and saying, well, what if things are available, what things aren't. Like, mm. for example, silicon dioxide is wildly available on the moon. It's what the bulk of the regolith is made of, and, and, sand, and so right? that's great. Ba- basically, a kind of sand. It's a little simpler than that. The sand that we've got on the Earth, because of the hydraulic cycle, constantly is purified and, and sort of uh, and oxidized in a very mm-hmm. simple way. On the moon, it's a little more complicated. Mm. Uh, but it is, uh, it is very easy to manufacture. Uh, there's lots to be done there. So it, it is exciting for me. And, and Paul wraps up to say, uh, thanks for allaying my fears. I will now move on to worrying about something else, like perhaps the collapse of the global financial system brought on by the advent of super uh, intelligent artificial intelligence. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, maybe that could be a future geek or, show. Or, yes, or yes. it could
0: be a lack of intelligence that brings that on too, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, we see we seem to be uh polarizing in both directions. I but know. rest assured, I actually have a couple of geek outs in the works in that space. Okay. For cool. exactly that reason of uh what what our work environment's gonna look like, what happens when we start having artificial generalized intelligences. There's there's lots to talk about.
0: There, there sure is. This is stuff that you and I have talked about over uh um,
1: an alcoholic beverage, shall we say, or, or two or three yeah. or four. Yep. Anyway. Yes. Uh, I totally care about that subject and I am absolutely working on, uh, being able to discuss it in a coherent fashion. Good. So Paul, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET rocks.com or via any of our social media. Cause we publish every show to Facebook and Google plus. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl
0: Franklin. And send us a tweet. We put them in petri dishes and grow mold on them. <laughs> 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 That's great. I am going to talk about petri dishes. Yeah, I know you are. Well, Richard, I don't know much about antibiotics except that, you know, they, I probably take way too many of them. Um, but, you know, I'd rather keep my limbs. So I guess they yep. work. But uh, I do know that one guy, Sir Alexander Fleming, was the guy who identified penicillin, but he wasn't necessarily the first one thinking
1: about antibiotic stuff, was he? No, it it goes back even older than that. There's evidence that the Egyptians would take moldy bread and strap it to infected parts of the body as a poultice, and that sometimes that worked, because that sounds really gross. It
0: does, but I guess if, you know, like Fleming, he saw mold was killing bacteria, certain kinds of bacteria in a Petri dish. Right. I guess, you know, you just put some mold on some bacteria and see what happens.
1: Well, and and it's more or less what happened. He found that exact thing. Although he was a a bacteriologist, he was far more interested in the bacteria. And so one of the things, uh, the thing he was interested in was actually it would be a mechanism for identifying bacteria because it didn't work on all bacteria. Yeah. Right. It was actually another group of people uh, a a little further on in 1928, of course, Fleming, and even referred to it, I found these notes, Mm. as mold juice. Because huh. it's, not, it's not actually the mold itself. Right. It's one of the f- things that the mold creates. And it only creates it when it's stressed. So the mold's trying to grow and it runs against something it can't grow against, like a bacteria. It starts to emit this substance, the penicillin, mm. and that kills off the bacteria, but only certain bacteria. So he was really only using it for identifying different bacteria. Hmm. But uh, it was Flory and Chain at the Oxford University in the late 1930s that really were trying to make it into a medicine. Yeah. But, of course, in the late 1930s, there were some other issues in the United Kingdom.
0: Yeah. They were a little preoccupied with getting
1: bombed. Yeah. Funny. So, in, in 41, Flory and Chain go to the U.S. to work on production. And uh, they're literally making huge vats to grow mold and extract the penicillin from it. Hmm. Uh, in 42, uh, in the March of 1942 was the first time that U.S.-made penicillin was t- used to treat a patient. That patient had streptococcal septicemia. So uh, one of the most common ways to die before antibiotics. Is that essentially strep? A, it, and, and you get a cut. Yeah. And then it goes septic yeah. and it will kill you. And yeah. the, so they, t- they saved this patient. They used half the supply of the world of penicillin at the time. Which wasn't much. Which not wasn't very much. And the crazy thing about penicillin, and we'll talk in more detail when we talk about how this actually works. Most of the penicillin that you consume, when, when you consume it, comes out in your pee. Hmm. And they were actually collecting this guy's pee and then recrystallizing the penicillin from it because the penicillin was unaltered. But folks don't like it when you put stuff from people's pee back in their bodies. Yeah, they kind of frown on that. Right. But within a few months, they were up to enough by 10 patients. But by the invasion of Normandy, so in the spring of 1944, so in a couple of years, Mm. the soldiers had in pouches with them 2.3 million doses available. Wow. By 1945, at the end of the war, U.S. factories were turning out about 650 billion units of penicillin a year. Wow! And then also in 1945 is when Florey and Chain shared the Nobel Prize with mm-hmm. Fleming right. for uh, the development of antibiotics. And I think it's really important to realize that we're only ta- pen- antibiotics are only around for about 70 years. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's just not that long.
0: And I, I know we're going to talk about resistance later, but how long did penicillin remain effective? And it is, or penicillin. is it still
1: effective? Penicillin is still effective today because it, it continued to evolve. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring up a lady by the name of Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkins, who's also a Nobel Prize winner, Yeah, who took a new technology coming in at the end of World War II called X-ray crystallography to actually study the chemical structure of penicillin. Hmm. And that allowed other scientists to actually... Come up with chemical synthesis of penicillin. So stop using huge vats of mold right. to extract this. A little more efficient ways to make it, but also by understanding the structure, so you can make variations. So there are still plenty of penicillins made. They're one of the most plentiful antibiotics. Um, they they fall into a category called beta lactams, mm-hmm. and that's both penicillins and what's called a. Se- cephalosporins and Ooh. i'm going to struggle with names this whole show
0: but you know if you hear the word spore or "sporin," that's that's essentially mold based right it, it
1: essentially yeah they did yeah. same with the cillins and so forth but those are very the beta lactams are a very large uh, array of antibiotics the cephalosporins are specifically for people that have penicillin allergies which are only about three percent of the population hmm uh but it is important uh and I, it's arguable that the first antibiotic was not penicillin and huh. uh it was a it was the it was sulfa or what they call sulfonamides okay and the issue of course and I think one of the reasons that we don't talk about it much is that it was really developed by germany between the wars oh okay but there's a great story attached to this When they figured out that it was an effective antibiotic, they they patented it. It was called Prontosil in 1933. But within a year, it was determined that sulfonamide, the active ingredient in sulfa, had actually been originally synthesized in 1906 and was used in the dye-making industry. Just nobody had tried to stick it in their arm before.
0: Right. And then Uh, there was a whole bunch of synthetic antibiotics that they made out of dye or they took from dye, all right? But why
1: would would a dye have antimicrobial or antibiotics? bacterial properties well exactly it seemed very odd and one of the problems is because it was no longer covered by a patent so anybody could make it they made it in a lot of different ways and in the late 1937 hundreds of people fell ill and some died from poor quality sulfa wow and that sort of led to the beginning of the fda in 1938
0: This episode of
1: .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud Platform. You may not know this, but the Google Cloud Platform supports Windows Server 2008, 2012, and 2016. It also
0: supports SQL Server versions 2012, 2014, and 2016 standard,
1: web, and enterprise editions with high availability. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine. That's Google's hosted Kubernetes environment.
0: .NET and .NET Core libraries are there for all 200-plus Google.com and cloud services in
1: NuGet, led by John Skeet of Stack Overflow fame. But what about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps.
0: You get stack Driver Logging error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core.
1: PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux.
0: And a great set of partners to bring your Windows and .NET workloads to GCP,
1: including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. And I bring up sulfonamides. Uh, they were really popular through World War II because you could get them in a powder form. It was literally, and you'll even see this in movies, you can sprinkle it on a wound and it'll keep it from getting infected. Wow. And they're, and they're still used today. Um, there's about 150 antibiotics and there are some new ones coming, but they all have strengths and weaknesses. And if you want to understand this, we kind of got to go back to biology 101. Okay. Let's do it. Uh, okay. And, it, and funny, we've talked a little bit about this when we did the GMO shows. Mm-hmm. Remember when I talked about prokaryotes and eukaryotes? Oh yeah. Yeah, in fact I went
0: home and that became my dinner table conversation that day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, and the prokaryotes think of that as more progenitor. They're the sort of earlier cells and bacteria are prokaryotes. Right. And they have they have DNA, they have a cell membrane but not necessarily a cell wall. Okay. Uh, and they also have these things called ribosomes, and ribosomes make actual proteins because mm. DNA is actually a protein. So yep. if you want to make copies of DNA, you need ribosomes. So they, in the simplest cells, you see that, and bacteria fall in that category. Right. The cells that we're made of and all animals are made of are eukaryotes, and they're different. Mm-hmm. So while prokaryotes are relatively simple, sort of a bag of goo with some DNA in it and some ribosomes in it not a whole lot more, and there are some variations, but not huge amounts. Eukaryotes is where you start to have things called organelles, or what they call membrane-bound organelles.
0: Now, do both have mitochondria?
1: No. Eukaryotes have mitochondria. Aha. Uh-huh. Aha. And so this was the distinct evolution that gave the advantage uh, of eukaryotes. So there's a bunch of different organelles. Mitochondria certainly be an important one. Uh, one would argue the first one was the nucleus, which actually gathered up the DNA material. So rather than just being in the cell as a whole, mm. it's in this nucleus. And then it grew a bunch of additional structures around it to make it even more effective, like mm. uh, endoplasmic reticulum. Okay. Uh, if you get into now mitochondria are your ATP producing energy cells. Right. They so energy that's powerhouses. Exactly. And so when you get in stuff like muscle cells, they have lots of mitochondria, but they'll have fewer. And it's not just animal cells that you carry out. So, of course, if you put chloroplasts into the cells, you can now make uh, energy from sunlight, a.k.a. Right. plants. Photosynthesis. Right, yeah, so they and there's a we we don't need to go all the way down this path there are dozens of different kinds of organelles, but it's important in the conversation around antibiotics because generally speaking, bacterial infections are prokaryotes, there are a few exceptions, mm-hmm. and antibiotics are tailored to attack typically the cell walls of prokaryotes, so the reason I can take penicillin and it won't kill every cell in my body, it'll just kill bacteria is that. The mechanism in penicillin that makes it effective disrupts the cell walls of prokaryotes.
0: Oh, I see. So anything that falls under that category is basically toast-
1: more or less. Now, the problem is there are different kinds of prokaryotes. Uh, and the primary distinction is the structure of their cell membrane. The cell membrane's actually got three different layers in it. And depending on the type of bacteria, it'll be a slightly different designs. So and they talk about a testing process called the gram process for figuring out if it's gram positive or gram negative. Okay. And so when we talk about penicillin attacking staph infection, sort of the classic what used to kill you kind of infection. Yeah. That penicillin is great against gram-positive bacteria. Okay. So are bacteria the only things that can cause an infection that antibiotics will work with? Uh, For the most part, positive gram uh, bacteria are the source of infection. I would also point out that there are many positive gram bacteria that are vital to your health. Hmm. So, you know, the problem here is that it's not like you have no bacteria in you. You're full oh, sure. of bacteria. Sure. They're a normal part of your body. The only question is when they get out of balance. Uh, and it's not only the prokaryotes that are important here. There are eukaryotes that can be infectious sources mm. like fungi and protozoa. Right. You know, They have a role to play in this as well. And it's part of what makes this whole thing difficult to diagnose right. and to deal with. It's just not a simple process because there's so much going on. Your body... Is perpetually waging a kind of war, right? With invasive organisms it's trying to achieve you know, stasis. I have
0: direct experience of this. Um, just this last year, earlier this winter, I developed an infection in my hand, and uh, went to the local clinic, and it it, uh, it got bad. And he said, "Yeah, we're going to put you on doxycycline for a week or whatever, ten days."
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it came back. It went away, but it came back, and it. And, and it, it came back strong. And he was a little worried. He
1: said... And that's especially scary because you know perfectly well that the bacteria that died were the ones more susceptible to the antibiotic. That's right. So so what was left was something more antibiotic resistant and it regrew. That's right. And that's why he
0: said, you know, oh, geez, you may have to go to a, you know, a, a specialist or something, And a, but we'll try it again with a double dose. And a double dose worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It did. But, they, you know, and, and I, I actually considered, oh, you know, if I didn't live in modern
1: medicine times, I would have lost my hand. It's entirely possible. Yeah. And and odds are even taking your hand off wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Because by the time you decide this is serious enough to take your hand off, it's actually elsewhere in your body. It's yeah. just not manifesting as visibly. Yeah. Right. And, and that's the scary part. Right. Uh, and it's important to understand the when we talk about the spectrum of things. like, I And mean, we need to talk about viruses as well because they're different. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That the size variation on cells is massive. So you can talk in micrometers, but let's talk in nanometers because we always seem to talk in nano stuff, mm-hmm. right? And remind ourselves this is 10 to the negative nine. Sure. Right. This uh, millionths of a meter. Pretty so small. A, a red blood cell is about 7,500 nanometers across. Okay. A strept bacteria is one-tenth that, about 750 nanometers across. Okay. The bacteria that causes rickets is a third smaller than that, about 250 nanometers across. Mm. Your average flu virus, because it's a virus, not a cell, it's not even really alive, depending on how you measure life, is less than 100 nanometers across. Jeez. It's tiny. So it's, and some are even smaller than that. The, the, the virus that causes yellow fever is 20 nanometers across. It'll fit in a CPU, for crying out loud. Hmm. So, when you're trying to diagnose these things, it's very challenging. There's a lot of process that goes on. And nobody goes to the doctor for fun. You're already ill in some respect.
0: You know, Richard, I've often wondered if it was possible to have a home microscope and, you know, like cough on a slide, stick it under there and be able to tell whether you've got a virus or a bacterial infection because most of the time you go to the doctor with what could be anything could be a fungus could be viral could be bacteria and the first thing they do is throw antibiotics at you and if you have a virus that that's not going to help in fact it's going to probably uh, cause you some harm or at least delay the healing
1: and there are broad spectrum antibiotics and there are narrow spectrum antibiotics and generally you only use narrow spectrum when you know exactly what you've got
0: but is it possible to tell the difference between a virus and a bacterial infection by looking at it under a
1: slide no, not between a virus and a bacterium hmm. because viruses aren't alive, they actually have to modify existing cells in your body to reproduce themselves. so for starters, you don't know what cells they're going into, but almost certainly they're eukaryotic cells and right? you would normal body cells yeah, and they're too small to see on their own. you pretty much need an electron microscope to see one oh, okay. but just figuring out what bacterial infection you've got is not a trivial problem now you said cough on a slide are you sure the 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 bacteria in question is in your lungs yeah, or in your true. throat
0: that's a good question you know the
1: one that the one that was on your skin was on your skin right it was probably a, a staph infection yeah it depends and and now typically in ho- when you go to the as an outpatient like to the doctor they're not likely to do these tests but in hospitals where infections are far more serious, there is a normal lab protocol for this. And and let me walk you through what's challenging. So let, and let's go with the cough one. So you are coughing up some phlegm. Yeah. We grab that phlegm. We take it to a lab. Now we have, there's not enough bacteria in the, the sample we just got to actually be able to do all the tests we need to do for. So step one is to culture more bacteria. Okay. So, We have to split it across multiple mediums because we don't know what kind of bacteria it is. Not all bacteria grow the same way on the same things. So we're going to have to split it amongst about a half a dozen different kinds of culturing mediums. So some of them are the agar plates, like the one you referenced to with the Petri dish. dish. There are also broth cultures, which are liquid cultures, and a few different ones of those. Hmm. There are also stab cultures, which is the... When you're dealing with a bacteria that doesn't like to be exposed to oxygen, you actually have to put it inside of a medium. Hmm. So you embed agar in the test tube and inject the bacteria into it. Wow. Some bacteria will grow readily in those forms, and some of them are more fastidious and will grow very slowly. So the growth time is anywhere between a minimum of 24 hours up to three or four weeks. So, and you really don't have time to wait and see. You
0: have to take, you have to cut that piece of phlegm up in 20 or so different
1: uh, slices and then grow it, try to grow it in all of these things. Right. So you're going to grow it in many ways possible. I mean, typical treatment process, especially in a hospital is they would put you on a broad spectrum antibiotic based on that particular thing, right? If they go, ah, if it's, we think it's a phlegm infection, we're going to go there. Hmm. Meantime, we're going to start the, we're going to start this testing. So now that you've grown some, they say it's a fast growing one. So, you, you know, it's, it's a, a streptococcus, mm-hmm. which tend to be fast growing. And, it, and if we're dealing with streptococcus, this is a. It's always in your body. It's the. It is the bacteria that causes pneumonia and can kill. It can also cause meningitis, depending on the variation. Right? There's lots of different strep bacteria. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so now we've grown some. We've grown some. It's fast growing. So we start the first testing stage. The first testing stage is what's called doing a Gram stain. So, in a gram stain, we're now going to separate whether or not these are gram-positive versus gram-negative bacteria. And an example of gram-positive is, of course, Streptococcus. Yeah. A gram-negative bacteria that's very common is E. coli. Hmm. All right. So, not likely to be in your lungs, but when you're testing for different illnesses, I mean, E. coli, which, by the way, is in virtually everybody's intestinal tract. Right. Right, and most animals too. E. coli is incredibly prevalent. In fact, it's not just a parasitic bacteria. Right, there are some strains of E. coli that actually make vitamin K two for you. Hmm. Wow, there are also some that you know cause catastrophic diarrhea. So, well, this is the challenge.
0: And I guess the thing is, is that your body's smart enough to know, oh, you know, that needs to be in the gut. That's okay. We're not going to attack it. Whereas if you take it, you know, the the problem with E. coli is it. It would get on people's hands. They wouldn't wash their hands and then serve food. Then you
1: ingest it. And then it does some other nasty stuff to you in the other side. And one would argue that you're ingesting E. coli all the time anyway. It's just when you get certain strains that are bad for your digestive tract. Got it. Believe me, your immune system is not as smart as you think. It is attacking the good E. coli all the time as well. But it tends to only attack that which is growing rapidly and is in higher concentrations. Mm. So small concentrations are fine. But when you get an infection is when you have a rapid growth. And that's when that tends to invoke your immune system. And by the way, white blood cells are huge. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> the, the red blood cell was about 7,500 nanometers across. Yeah. White blood cells can be 15,000 nanometers across. Wow. And that's important because as we go through this process, right, where we've now cultured the bacteria, we put it up on a slide and we do a gram stain with it. And the gram stain means we put the bacteria on a slide, we dry it, and then we add crystal violet to it. And crystal violet actually penetrates the cell walls of pretty much every cell that's on, that's on that. And remember, there's going to be hundreds of different kinds mm. of bacteria and cells on that slide. Yeah. And it makes them vaguely purplish. You then add iodine to it. Now, the iodine also goes through the cell wall well, and then it combines with the crystal violet, which actually makes that the, the combination of crystal violet and iodine, those a- uh, molecules become larger. So they're harder to remove from the cell. Then you wash that with alcohol, and that tends to remove a certain amount of the crystal violet iodine, but it removes at different rates. So in gram-negative cells, because the membranes are thinner, it tends to wash all the crystal violet iodine out of them. But in gram-positive cells, because the cell walls are thicker, it tends to stay in. So at that point, if you were to look at it on a microscope, all of your gram-negative Cells are now transparent, and your gram positive ones are purple. You then do an additional step where you put safranin into it, and that makes the gram negative pink. It, it makes everything pink, but the gram positive still show purple because it's a stronger color. Okay. So at this point, now you study what they call you study the morphology. You look at the slide. You are hoping to see certain concentrations of bacteria. They might be gram positive, might be gram negative. So going to be different colors. You are also going to see white blood cells. White blood cells is a good sign because generally you would only see white blood cells if there's an infection taking place. Yeah, yeah. But understand, a white blood cell is 15,000 nanometers across and a staph bacteria is 750 nanometers mm-hmm. across. So the, the they're 200 times? No, they're 20 times larger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. OK, so actually figuring this out in the slides, not easy to see, but you're looking for the shape. You know, when you study morphology, it's like, are there a bunch of them? Are they round or are they cylindrical? Right? Are they in clumps? Or are they in chains? All those things help you to understand more about what you're looking at. Now you finish the gram test. The next thing you would do based on the results of that gram test is you might do a rapid catalase test. Now this takes about a day. But it actually is figuring out whether or not the bacteria is catalase-producing. Okay. Which means they can re- resist peroxides. So if we've gone, we've gone down this path so far where we figured out that it's gram-positive, it's aerobic, because part of your culturing process is whether you add oxygen or remove oxygen. That's why you have the STAB methods and so forth. And it responded to the catalase. Then you do another test called a coagulase test. And that would actually, uh, that takes a a few hours to do. And if you get a positive coagulase test, you've got Staphylococcus aureus. So you're probably down to one particular bacteria out of how many.
0: And I think we're going through all these details just to let people know just how sophisticated and and
1: how difficult it is to diagnose any particular bacteria. the time that it takes. Yeah. Right? None of this is fast. It takes time. In a hospital setting, they're doing this constantly because it's so important to get it right. right. They, there are particular antibiotics that are exceptionally good at fighting Staphylococcus aureus, hmm. right? which Staphylococcus aureus is also where MRSA comes from. The, What's the methicillin-resistant strain. This is the killer in hospitals right now. Oh. right, is the MRSA infection. So, while well, Staphylococcus aureus has been around for a long time, there's now a strain that's starting to show up more and more that's resistant to methicillin, which is a penicillin derivative that's quite powerful and good at, at fighting these particular infections. Ooh. But now that we have these strains that aren't, we have new drugs coming down the pipe like vancomycin that yeah. are able to fight MRSA. Well, Richard... Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now. It must be a happy time again.
0: Yeah, it's time to mix up a gram cocktail. Two jiggers of bourbon, little E. coli, a shake of crystal violet and iodine, and a splash of bitters. Mmm. <laughs> Gross. I think you just had a poop drink. <laughs> it's actually... Oh, yuck. It's time to give away a experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries, and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today, and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30 day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? One of yours, Richard. Ashri Cohen from Quebec. Well, congratulations, Ashri! Yeah. i clap for you, sir. Absolutely. And, uh, Ashri just won the D experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at developer express just for being a member of the dot net rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to dot net Rocks.com, click on the big get free stuff button, answer a few questions and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one
1: lucky member of the dot net rocks fan club, but, you have to sign up to win. So, I mean, I ran down a set of tests that a typical hospital will do to identify a, what particular strain of bacteria they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And and one of the reasons to do that is to get what they call definitive therapies. So, there's really three ways you administer antibiotics you do it what they call prophylactically or before you're infected. Right. And the most class generally, that's. In hospitals, when you're going to undergo a treatment that has a risk of infection, they might just preventatively give you antibiotics. Yeah. The other prophylactic treatment that most people are aware of is taking anti-malarial drugs when you're in a malaria region just to decrease the likelihood of being infected. But most of the time, and this is exactly what happened to you, you have what's called an empiric therapy. Yeah. So we suspect you have an infection. We're not exactly sure what it is. And so we give you a broad spectrum uh, antibiotic that should be able to knock it down. Yep. And typically in a hospital setting, in an inpatient setting, we would then go on and start doing the testing process, walking through all these things, to figure out exactly what particular bacteria we're dealing with. Then we'll tend to re- take copies of that bacteria and treat it in vitro, so in the Petri dish. They'll treat it with different antibiotics to see which one reacts the best, and that will allow them to switch to a definitive therapy where we know exactly what it is, what it's sensitive to, and give you the narrow spectrum antibiotic that's most effective. Okay. Because the broad spectrum antibiotics is where we get these super infections. And what your doctor was afraid of is you were headed for a super infection. Right. We killed off all the easily killable back, uh, bacteria and all that was left was the hard to kill out bacteria. Right. And that's very dangerous. Yes, it is. The, uh, it's also important to understand what they call, and I love some of these words, pharmacokinetics.
0: Yeah. I came across that it, one
1: myself. You know, you can get a cream for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> An antibiotic cream, so it, actually. Yeah. because And what we're talking about is how does the antibiotic get into your body? Where does it go once it's in your body? Mm. And how does it leave? Right? Yeah. Or they call it absorption, distribution, and metabolism excretion. So, I mean, most of the drugs we're aware of are oral. But there's also injectables. There's also IV. And a lot of that has to do with how bioavailable is it? How well does it do in your stomach? Yeah. If you're going to take it orally, for example, um, and very high doses, if you have a serious infection, they'll typically give it IV because it will upset your stomach to try and take it orally. Mm. And in in the end, they want to get it to your bloodstream anyway. So the quicker they get your bloodstream, the better. It's also important to note that some antibiotics depend on stomach acids to activate, which is why they'll say you can't take this with antacids or don't consume milk. Right, right. Because they affect your stomach pH. Uh, also some depend on food, both positively and negatively. So like there can be no food in your stomach or there needs to be food in your stomach. All of these have to do with making that medicine bioavailable to your body. So this is what they mean by
0: pharma. Pharmacokinetic means how does it react
1: with all of these factors? What is the best way to administer that antibiotic? How do we get it into your body? And then how does it get where it needs to go? Yeah. And where this also gets tricky is when you deal with with uh, infections like meningitis because it's an infection in the cerebral spinal fluid Mm. you have relatively little blood exchange with the cerebral spinal fluid so to get enough antibiotic in there to make a difference for anti for meningitis they have to give you massive doses of antibiotic just because so little is going to get from your bloodstream into the cpf
0: and they can't necessarily just take a needle and stick it in there can they
1: it's incredibly painful right and uh, it's also why they just haven't done a lot of testing in that space either most of the testing for dealing with cerebral spinal fluid infections has been done on animals and it may or may not map we only know so much there Hmm. there are also some antibiotics that are absorbed easily by fat so the weight of the patient can matter as well in trying to get the dosage right yeah yeah and then you also have so depending on the antibiotics, some will, will go through your system quickly, but will, like penicillin will be excreted unchanged from your urine. So it didn't all get much of it won't get absorbed. And so they have where you see repeated doses like take this every four hours. It's because your body excretes it rapidly ah, I where see. there are some where like one dose and you're done because you have to metabolize it, which means all of it goes through your body. The next concept is what they call pharmacodynamics, or yeah. how does this drug interact with the target organism? Yeah. And, and that's part of like, how do we, are, are we actually killing it or are we paralyzing it? Is it static or is it sidal? Mm. So a bacterial sidal antibiotic like penicillin actually kills the bacteria because it disrupts its ability to maintain a cell wall. Mm. It ties in with the lipids in the cell wall, and breaks it down so that the, the, uh, the bacteria undergoes what's called lysis or disintegration. Uh, there are also antibiotics that are bacteriostatic. So they typically interfere with the ribosome process so that it can't create new proteins and it, so can't, it reproduce. can't reproduce. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so depending on the kind of drug, you'll get different behaviors one way or the other. And it depends on the kind of infection as to what you want. We kind of want sidles. It's just that they tend to be very fast. And sometimes you want long-running. And a great example of this is tuberculosis. Okay. I, I want to call it tuberculosis because it's special. It is, it's, it's interesting how we've largely handled tuberculosis in the West, but in developing nations, they have much more trouble. And there's a reason for that. Tuberculosis is caused by a particular kind of bacterial complex. There's a huge number of them, dozen variants, that are called mycobacterium. Okay. And the myco is the Greek word for fungus because it's a bacteria that grows differently depending on where it lives and also has a dormant state where the cell wall is particularly rigid and so is almost immune to antibiotics. Wow. And so just figuring out for sure that you have tuberculosis can take weeks. It's a very difficult bacteria to grow outside of the body. It grows differently in the lungs than it does elsewhere. That's and it really does like the lungs, doesn't it? It does, and it, which is what it's famous for, and it's also an effective spreading mechanism. Yeah. The modern way to fight tuberculosis today, if you show up with tuberculosis in the Western world, you are going to get a four-antibiotic drug cocktail called RIPE. All right. Uh, and that's shorthand for the four different antibiotics. One of them is called Rifamin. Yeah. This is an... A, growth blocker, so it stops the tuberculosis from growing. It also turns all of your your liquid secretions orange and red, uh, including your urine and your tears. It will actually stain contact lenses. They don't recommend wearing contacts while undergoing this treatment. Wow. And by the way, because this is a four-drug treatment, and it, ta- it takes six to nine months to administer, and typically they prefer to do it intravenously, so that's why you will be hospitalized for an extended period of time. And also probably quarantined, huh? That's part of the process. But again, once we get the rifabin in your body, you, you're going to, you, they're no longer growing. Mm. We're also going to give you isinocid, which is a particular antibody good at attacking the dormant microbacterium. What made tuberculosis so tough to breach was that you would have these dormant cells. So even when we kill all the active ones, the dormant ones would still be there and they would eventually come non dormant. And there you are again. Wow. Uh, it, by the way, interacts with alcohol. So you cannot drink while you're on this regimen. Next up, the P is for pyrazinamine, which actually shortens up the therapy to only six months as opposed to nine months by slowing down the growth of the active bacteria. Wow. Uh, Also causes gout. So woohoo. Woohoo. And the fourth drug is ethylmobutol, which attacks the cell walls of the microbacterium to accelerate death and uh, also causes optic neuritis, which gives you temporary red-green blindness. That's Awesome. So is it any wonder that in developing nations, they have a tough time fighting tuberculosis? No. This is incredibly difficult medicine. But in some ways, it's also the pinnacle of antibiotics. This complex set of drugs together works and still takes months. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's very challenging to, to put all that stuff together. I could go down all of the different antibiotics, but it's it's important to recognize there's several different classes of them, really about five major classes these days, although there's a, they're discussing a sixth one at the moment with the most recent set of medicines that are going on. Okay. And each of them has different efficacies based on the type of infection and where it's located. You know, there are many infections that are minor when they're on the skin and deadly when they get in the bloodstream. And a staph infection is an example of that. So it's one of the reasons you want to treat early and often so they don't aren't allowed to propagate for a long time. And often broad spectrum antibiotics have the side effects of weakening your immune system in other ways so that it can cause new infections to occur. Right. So there is a, a balance there. Uh. And it's also, I think, really important to understand that antibiotics are not made per se. They are found the same way that Fleming found this bit of bread mold that was killing off bacterial cultures. All antibiotics largely come that way. And what's happened in the past five years or so is we've gotten really good at automating that process. So we're, we're collecting soils, uh, materials from oceans, anywhere we can find. And we're doing that culturing and gram testing on mass in huge scales Hmm. to grow different cultures and to test them as many ways we can to see if they actually kill bacteria. So they're culturing huge amounts of bacteria and then essentially recreating that same old Fleming test. Does this react with it? Does that react with it in a huge scale? Wow. Uh, Because it is just a search. Right? There's no other way around it. You're just searching for all the possibilities. And one of the most interesting discoveries, and this is only as of 2015, is a a, a antibiotic they're calling texobactin. Uh-oh. Now, it looks like it's an entirely new class of antibiotic. It is a bacterial side in the sense that it kills the cell wall in a similar way to vancomycin. Yeah. In fact, when tested in the lab in Petri dishes, it kills every kind of gram-positive bacteria they tested against, Hmm. including tuberculosis. Wow. Uh, Also used a much lower dose to kill MRSA, which is this drug-resistant strain of Staphylococcus aureus. Wow. Wow. And they did that testing in mice, so that's huge. So where you have these persistent infections where they're just beginning more and more antibiotic-resistant and possibly even vancomycin being... This last line of defense that they only administer hospitals is still in massive doses. This may be the first real breakthrough antibiotic in quite a while. It's been years. It's supposed to go into human testing in 2017, so any time now. But the process of of evaluating antibiotics is very time-consuming because it's becoming very challenging to do because of this steady increase in resistance. And resistance
0: isn't something that may happen... Sometime soon. I mean, it is happening now. The world
1: health organization put out a serious warning about this. It's also why you're seeing the, generally the removal of stuff like antibacterial soaps, right? Right. Because antibacterial soap is your perfect way to create antibiotic resistant drugs. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You just, don't want to do that it's a mistake it's safer if you if you're that concerned about bacteria and let's be very clear you have bacteria all over your body all the time that's right the reason when your immune system's strong you just simply fight it off right you have you have streptococcus in your nose right now it's virtually guaranteed that you have that right Mm. now and the reason it's in your nose is because your white blood cells can't go there Hmm. because it's a cool spot part of your body and your white blood cells want warmer spots when it gets down to your lungs Then your your immune system goes to work and wipes it out, and if your immune system's weakened, you get pneumonia. Hmm, Interesting, but you never get rid of it completely because that bacteria has learned to live in places that your immune system isn't as effective in. Wow, it's clever, right? It It is is clever. it's the evidence of evolution going on around us all the time. Well, you just said it right there. I
0: mean, it, you you have this conversation with people who don't understand the pro- the simple process of natural selection, and you can watch it happening practically by the
1: minute with bacteria. Absolutely, it's it's con- anything short lived and rapidly reproducing is showing up like this all the time. Right. Uh, one of the solutions for hospitals because they're dealing with exactly that problem. MRSA was born in hospitals. By using acne bacterial soaps to keep the hospital clean. It's not that we don't want to keep the hospital clean. but We don't want to use bleach because it's so destructive. So we have to use something that that works better uh, and doesn't cultivate these alternatives. One of the uh, materials they're experimenting with are some of these new nanomaterials. Okay. And this particular material is basically a nanosurface structured the same as a shark skin. Ah. So they've been... They've been studying shark skin for a long time because shark skin seems to have a shape that stops uh, parasites from clinging to it. It's got a very interesting texture. And so they modeled this after uh, shark skin. Now, in the Battle of MRSA, one of the materials they started to use was copper. So they were actually looking at putting copper surfaces in hospitals because MRSA lands on copper It it dies. Really? That you'll find, compared to your typical linoleum, 80% fewer bacteria on copper surfaces. They're quite toxic. Huh. The problem is that copper is expensive. Sure. So this, what they call sharklet material, not only substantially cheaper, also uh, 94% less MRSA than a regular surface. So almost none. Wow. And what's interesting is it's not killing the bacteria directly. What it's doing is making it incredibly hard for the bacteria to cling to the surface. So, one bacteria somehow manages to stick that surface. When it reproduces, the one it reproduces falls off and ends up on the floor Hmm. where it's much easier mopped away by a a bleach or peroxide-driven cleaner. You follow me? Yeah, I do.
0: Yeah, sure.
1: But more importantly, we're not using these antibiotic approaches to kill this off. So, we're not... Creating that evolutionary chain that makes more resistant forms. All right, good.
0: Now there is one technology that I've been following closely. That now uh, in just this month, um, you see uh, MIT coming out with uh, these papers and research about using a, a technology called CRISPR. C R I S P R. It's a uh, it's an acronym, and it essentially allows you to edit. DNA. Right. Just like you would edit a word document, you know, you basically say I don't want that part, I want to replace it with this, I want to replace that with this and that with this and and it is showing promise and they're even saying that this technology could replace antibiotics by just snipping out the the genetic code that causes them to either reproduce or or whatever.
1: I mean, what do you think about that? Well, you know how viruses prey on eukaryotes, right? They're these little bits of DNA that basically inject themselves into cells and modify their DNA to reproduce themselves. Yeah. There is an equivalent in bacteria, in prokaryotes called phages. Yes. And same thing, the phages disrupt the bacteria, but they're very targeted. So the challenge, the whole strength of CRISPR is his ability to precisely manipulate genetics Mm. so that you could tailor... A particular phage to attack a particular bacteria. Yeah. The problem is it's super precise. You have to match things up exactly. So we have to get to a place where the hospital lab testing is now doing genetic testing as well so that you can get exact matches. Yeah. To be able to produce the right kinds of phages. This may be literally custom tailored medicine, right? Where I will take your particular infection, put it into a machine and be able to spit out a particular tailored medicine to kill that infection. Yeah. It's further away than we want it to be, Mm -hmm. but we, you know, we're at this moment, we're suddenly saying we have the elements. Right. Now, can we actually turn it into a process that moves more quickly? yeah
0: it is really exciting I mean uh, if you, if you think about what it's sort of like ultimate power, however, you have to get it right yeah and you know the evolution has given us these very intelligent bodies that seek homeostasis and there's so many things that we could miss you know I mean, we see that in medicine over and over again.
1: My concern with CRISPR right now is 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 it's the super drug right now. It can fix all things, right. right? We're still waiting to find out what the edges are of CRISPR's capabilities, right? What can we do? What can't we do? And when and it just sort of speaks to the maturity of a technology when they can give you the edges. That yes, they know, that's as far as they can go. Yeah, and um, we're not there yet. I'm holding off doing a show specifically on CRISPR because there's just so many things yeah. and so much yet to really be understood. Yeah. It's definitely uh,
0: something to watch.
1: And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm hopeful for the future still, I you know, for as much as I you know, go into these things and can be seen very pessimistic. Uh, I do believe we can science our way out of this problem. Me too, Richard. Uh, and I've talked a little bit about viruses. There are treatments for virus and uh, viral infections. The problem is that viruses, like I said, are, are very tiny. They're very hard to diagnose because you really can't see the virus itself. You have to look at the cells that it's modifying. Yeah. Uh, antibiotics, because they tend to only attack uh, prokaryotes, aren't going to go after your eukaryotic cells yeah. even when infected. But we have developed specific antiviral treatments and for better or worse the aids epidemic led to a huge amount of money being poured into understanding viral infections and retroviral infections and so we now have some technology around that um the ones that you'll probably know uh the anti-herpes drug so herpes is a virus mm. and there are a set of drugs now that can treat that by blocking the replication mechanism that the virus uses yeah again very specific go see your doctor Uh, Another famous one is the anti-influenza drugs. Right, Tamiflu. Stuff like Xanthamir. These are drugs specifically for blocking flu. Uh, But because they're so tailored and relatively expensive, you would normally not administer these anti-flu drugs to otherwise healthy people. They are typically used for people in the hospital settings where a flu could kill them. Then you'll see those... uh, uh, inhibitors. You know, when uh, you say it's inhibitor.
0: difficult to diagnose uh, viruses, it's also mm-hmm. impossible to treat. I mean, uh, except from a couple of these edge cases, you, you, your doctor is going to say, you know, go home, have chicken soup, get plenty of rest. Seriously, they just don't—they yeah. don't know what to do with viruses.
1: Well, and, and also because these kinds of drugs are very expensive and have side effects and are difficult to administer, they only put them into people where the outcome of not having the drug is dramatically worse. Yeah. You, know, you will get better for the flu if your immune system is functioning relatively well. Right. There is some interesting research going on. Maybe you saw this, and in, in, this was in the news for a while, of a, of a compound called squalamine. No, I haven't. It, com- it comes from sharks. Huh?
0: Sharks turn out to be... The saving uh, element of humanity.
1: Yeah, so we should stop <laughs> killing them for crying out loud. Right. Well, what, the thing that I notice about shark is they've is that they've persisted for hundreds of millions of years. Yeah. That's a hint that they've got some stuff going for them, right? And so, what squalamine does is it actually replaces a protein on a cell wall that impairs viral injection. Hmm. So you get the, you, what would basically do is stop the virus from reproducing. Now, again, early stage research, they found this compound, they've done it in vitro. Now they're starting to experiment with in vivo to see if they can actually turn it into a reliable medicine. Yeah. well, That's interesting. And, uh, and one last class, uh, I mentioned this briefly in the parasitic classes. So that's the protozoas and the nematodes, uh, illnesses to fall in this category malaria is the big one yeah um malaria has been endemic in africa for a long time bill gates's foundation has worked hard on it and may have broken the back of it it will literally take decades to know for sure if we've got malaria under control it it's a it's a whole show under itself it's hugely complex uh typically you take anti-malarial drugs called quinolines prophylactically and a.k.a. preventively when you're going to go into a malaria area, you take them. I have taken them. I've gone to malaria places. Uh, they suck. Yeah. There's two things horrible about the quinolines. First off, they make beer taste bad. Ah. And, yeah. and second off, they mess with your sleep. They give you really weird dreams. <laughs> but the, where African heritage people get sick from malaria and it's endemic, Westerners die. It's serious. And and if you come home with malaria, you are directly to the hospital on IVs. It's very challenging to deal with. Protozoa, especially the malaria protozoa, there are complicated, hmm. complicated illnesses to deal with. Wow. Uh, and cryptosporidium and GRDF, which we do see in the West they're typically not directly treated per se. There are drugs to try and mitigate them. But more importantly, it's just let your body flush it out so they keep you hydrated, they keep your, your electrolytes in balance, and you will get over it. Hmm. Um, Ascarius, which is a nematode that you'd know it as the roundworm, right. um, which all of this stuff is horrible and gives me the creeps. Again, yeah, there are yeah. drugs that, that are fairly good at, at attacking them, but they're not technically antibiotics per se. Right? They're anti-parasitics and they work differently. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a very interesting process to deal with all of this. And again, this gets back to you know, don't listen to us for an hour and be convinced I got this under control. It's right. much more complicated. Yeah. yeah. Uh, same for the antifungals. That's right. Uh, they so the yeast, the molds, and the diporphic fungi, which would be sometimes yeast, sometimes mold, because you know that's how evolution that's works. How it they works. come up with weird options. Yeah. Um. Fungals are eukaryotic, so they're generally resistant to antibiotics. Um, I would argue the most famous yeast of the bunch is the candida. Yep. So this is the yeast infection. It wrecks wine, so we definitely don't like it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's about 50 different variants of candida, and each of them have different treatments. So very challenging to to manage it.
0: Let me get back to my story a little bit of my hand. Yeah. At the same time, I had a rash around my midsection, and I've had it for a long, long time. And uh, I've been using, you know, hydrocortisone cream. I tried antifungals. I tried uh, just everything that you can possibly think of. I put on that thing and nothing worked. And then uh, I I made a appointment with a dermatologist and she looked at it and she said, oh, you know, maybe we can try this and try this. And she was just like throwing spaghetti on the wall, right? Gave me like five different samples of stuff and gave me a prescription for one of them. I tried all of them. They didn't work. I got a call. My prescription was in. I went to pick it up. It was like five hundred dollars, you know, for something that doesn't work in the sample, right? So then, when I went back uh, for another round of antibiotics for my hand, and the doctor said, you know, he's the same one who said, "Oh, geez, we might have to bring you to a specialist," but I will give you a double doxy. I showed him uh, my rash, and he goes, "Oh, that's eczema." Now, (laughs) now I had been to supposedly the best dermatologist in town, and. Her reaction was, we'll throw everything at it and see what works. Nothing worked. So then my wife said, oh, you know, you know, one of my kids had some eczema, and the only thing that worked for her was Eucerin cream. And it's over the counter. It's, it's I guess it's derived from oatmeal or something. And uh, <laughs> it freaking worked. And, uh, you know, here I've been suffering, like, for years. A dermatologist didn't know, but the local guy at the – at the clinic, the walk-in clinic was like, oh, yeah, you got
1: eczema. Here, try this. Boom. Gone. And, and what do you bet part of that is it's endemic to your area. So he's seen a bunch of it and recognizes it. Yeah, maybe. You know, it's just, you, you know, you had a rash. It's such a vague uh, symptom. Yep. Figuring out the precise, and it's one of the challenges we deal with antifungals. It's a specific treatment yep. for a specific variant of a specific yeast or mold or dimorph. Yeah. It's, it's hard. And they, they also show up differently. I was reading on this one dimorphic fungi called histoplasma. Get this. I can figure out how you would diagnose this. Typically you get it by inhaling the dried droppings of birds or bats. Oh, good Lord. It'll, it'll sit in your lung for years and years. And then one day it erupts and you start having coughing, breathing problems and you cough up blood. It presents like tuberculosis. Wow. Yeah. But, and it's treated completely differently. Scary stuff. Yep. But the more you know. One of the reasons I'm not going to do a lot of medical uh, geek outs is I have everything now. Like, this just <laughs> triggers all of your psychoses around elements. I'm itchy. Yeah. Right. Like, I'm just making myself mental. But it, I admit to enjoying reading the scientific papers and really tearing through documentation about the span of di- antibiotics. In one respect, I am also feel good that there are as many as there are and yeah. there are more coming, that yeah. we are relearning old antibiotics that we've forgotten about because they weren't effect- as effective as new ones mm. and now they're bringing back the old ones and tailoring them so they work more effectively. We're better at doing the testing at scale so we can figure out f- efficacy in a more reliable way mm. and we seem to be tripping on some new ideas and new sources of new antibiotics. Yeah. So Still more to come. And there's always that CRISPR monster out there. Maybe this is the big solve. Maybe it's not. I don't know yet. But uh, I'm optimistic.
0: Yeah, me too. Me too, Richard. Well, man, this has been amazing. Thanks so much for
1: doing all the work that you do and sharing with us. My pleasure, buddy. And uh, by all means, we love your comments. If you got any other questions what we missed? I contemplated splitting this into two shows. So if we missed something important, we could do another. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks
0: .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pop Studios Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter vans by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog boy. Life is hard.